Good morning, Living Hope. Happy Easter. Awesome. Like we had plenty of seats. They're just all front row seats. You guys don't like the front row or something? What's up with that? It's a splash zone. It is. It is. Good to see everybody. Uh, great time. We had such a great week this week with our Holy Week. All of our uh, activities that we did started last Sunday with Palm Sunday, and the kids really treated us to something special last uh, last Sunday. And then I had a great Thursday night service, a great Friday night service, and a terrific carnival yesterday. Uh, and so just thank you for all of you who uh, worked so hard to, to make all that happen. And for those of you who were able to, to come and enjoy it, we're, we're glad that was uh, of benefit to you. We're starting a new uh, series this week, a new sermon series called Better Together. So if this is your first time at church, it's a great time to kind of get, get in on the ground floor of a good series. Uh, I, I think it's going to be good. Uh, and so anyway, it's, it's going to be, we're going to be talking about how uh, this thing that we call faith or Christianity uh, or, you know, our, our Christian uh, faith or religion, that uh, it's not meant to be uh, done solo. It's not meant to be done all by yourself. And I know there's, there's like a, a big, uh, I don't know, kind of opinion, a lot of opinions out there that say, this whole thing, you know, like faith is very personal and I, it's, it's just between me and God and, and I don't need to go to church. I don't need to, you know, I, I got my own thing with God and, and that's the way faith, in fact, church kind of screws everything up and Christian people kind of screw everything up. And so if it was just me and Jesus, everything would be all good. The only problem with that is it's, it's just not true. It's not true. In fact, if you, if you live out your faith that way, you've basically kind of created your own religion because that's not the faith that we learn about in the, in the Bible. Uh, and it's certainly not the faith that even you may be a big fan of Jesus, but that's not the faith that Jesus spoke of either. And so I want to take a look at today about why that is, why it is that faith is so critical to us and that we need each other as we, as we do faith. And so we're going to spend several weeks talking about that and, uh, and what the strength is, is having a, uh, you know, brothers and sisters in Christ that we can kind of rally together with. Uh, it's a really big deal. So it's Easter Sunday. Like I'm so glad you're all here, and I feel like preaching today. And so we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna dive in uh, hot and heavy. But this is um, you know th- this thing. There's a reason that we celebrate this thing called the resurrection. There's a reason. It's because Jesus Christ is alive. It's not that he was risen. It's that he is risen. He is still risen. He is still reigning. He is still alive today and active in all of our lives. And that's something worth, we're not going to golf clap that. That's something worth really uh, getting excited about and celebrating. It's why Christians all over the planet today are taking time out to remember this essential fact because it's the most important event that's happened in all of human history. If the resurrection didn't happen, there's better stuff on TV for us to be watching this morning. Amen. And so, so like it's, it's, it's critical. And if you take the resurrection out of this, this thing, then we are here completely, completely wasting our time. You ever wonder why it is that, um, that this faith, 2,000 years ago, you know, Jesus started this whole movement that we call Christianity. And, and it, for 2,000 years plus, this thing has carried on. That doesn't make any sense. That doesn't make any sense that, like, we are a completely different human race than, than the people who were alive 2,000 years ago. We're more critical thinkers. We're more intelligent and, you know, all that kind of stuff, like most of us. And, and, uh, and so, but it's like... It doesn't make any sense that that should still care, be carrying on today. And, and in fact, all throughout history, people have tried to squash it, have tried to, uh, you know, get it to stop and, and, and get the faith to go away. And it thrives under that. Why is it that this should happen? Why is it that this faith should continue to go on? It's because something happened. 
something that happened that we call the gospel story. Now, the gospel story is this. The gospel story is this. Look at this. The gospel is that God sent Jesus to save this world by making all things new. Now, if you want to distill the gospel down into one sentence, that's it right there. That God sent Jesus, his son, to save this world because we were in need of saving. We are, we are sinners, every single one of us. None of us gets out of this thing uh, unscathed. We're not perfect. We are all sinners. You may look back to the story of Adam and Eve and blame it all on them or whatever, but they, here you've repeated their same mistakes, every single one of us since, since time and memoriam. We're all sinners and we're sinners. God is holy. God is perfect. God is righteous. He is so far above and beyond us, but he desired to be, desires to be in a relationship with us and to have a meaningful interaction with us and care for us and love us. The problem is, is that he's, his holiness, he's so perfect. He's so holy that he, he can't abide the fact that we are sinners. And how do you make sin and holiness match up? And so God kind of initiated this plan with one of his one of the guys in the Old Testament, a guy by the name of Abraham. He said, this is what is going to happen. I'm going to grow your family. In fact, I'm going to grow your family so huge, it's going to become its own nation. And I want for the world to know that as jacked up and as sinful and as evil as the world is, that I, God, have a plan to fix all of this and to set all things right, to make all things new. And I'm going to do it, Abraham, through your family. I'm going to do it through this nation that will eventually be called Israel. I'm going to do it through them. And the problem was, and this is the whole story of the Old Testament. The whole story of the Old Testament is that Israel could not live up to that calling. They kept failing. They kept turning from God. They kept, you know, um, um, you know worshiping other gods and, and disobeying and sinning. They, they could not live up to that calling to be the light to the world, to be the light to the nations and, and, and share that good news that God had a plan for all of humanity. And so God basically says this, you, since you can't live up to this calling, I'm going to send a perfect, a true Israelite who will be able to actually do this. And his name is Jesus, God's only son. So Jesus comes on the scene 2,000 years ago, and he lives this perfect life. Now, here's the thing about Jesus. A lot of people will talk about, do you believe in Jesus? That's really a, 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 the wrong question to ask. It's not about whether or not you believe in Jesus, because everybody believes in Jesus. Nobody disputes the fact that there was a Jesus. Historically, um, that, is, that is just fact. Jesus lived. He um, was arrested. He died on a cross, on a Roman cross. That, there's nobody who disputes that. The question is, you got to take that question a little bit further. Do you believe that Jesus is who the Bible says that he is? Do you believe that he really was God's rescuer for all of humanity? Do you really believe that he is the son of God, the living God? That's where the faith part comes in. And so Jesus shows up and he begins to live this life where he's He's perfect. He teaches us amazing things. He begins to talk about this very mysterious thing that he keeps, he keeps calling the kingdom. The kingdom is going to look like this, and the kingdom is going to look like this. And everybody's like, what's this kingdom he's talking about? And, then, and at first they think, well, you know, they're thinking political. They, they think they need a political savior, somebody who's going to set them free from Roman rule because they were under the control of the Romans. Like somebody, God's going to send us a rescuer who's going to, you know, make us a strong nation again. And so People begin to follow him. They like his teachings. They like that he's kind of churning things up and, and, and upsetting the establishment. And that's very important. If, if you, if you cannot miss that one part about Jesus is that, because a lot of times we have this idea of Jesus that he was this kind of hippy-dippy guy handing out flowers going, just love each other. But that was not Jesus. You know, he, he, your grandma had that picture in her living room of like the Vidal Sassoon Jesus. 
That was not Jesus. Like Jesus was not just this like, like, oh, love, love, love everybody. That's not, if you go back this week, I challenge you, go back this week, pick one of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, and just read it this week. Read it straight through. And don't just read the red letters. Read all the letters. Read everything that says there. Because what you'll find is a very different picture of Jesus that the Jesus that the gospels tell us about was not some sort of hippy-dippy guy. The Jesus that the gospels tell us about was a revolutionary he was, I mean, he upset everything. He was a revolutionary. And when you're called into this relationship of following Jesus Christ, make no mistake about it. You're called to join the revolution. You're called to join the revolution. So this kingdom thing that Jesus kept talking about, where he's like, my kingdom's going to look like this and my kingdom is going to look like this. And everybody's like, what's his kingdom? Maybe he means this is what Israel's going to look like once he throws the Romans out. But what Jesus actually did was, When he came to earth, he established his kingdom, and we are that kingdom. And a lot of times when we think of God's kingdom, we think of something that's coming in the future. The kingdom is here right now. It will continue on into the future, but the kingdom is here right now. It's alive. It's active. It's what we do in the name of Christ today, what we do in this thing that we call faith or our religion or Christianity or however you want to term that. What we do is we work hard, kind of lock arms with each other, partner with each other to make our world, to make our community look more and more like God's kingdom every day. That's the revolution that we're called to. That's the revolution that we're called to. It's not a personal thing. You know how come it doesn't work as a personal thing? Because one-man revolutions are just sad, like you can't do a one man. Like you, if you got, if you're like, I just got this thing with Jesus, me in my closet, just just our own little thing. I'm just telling you, like, you can revolutionize your closet all you want, but that's not going to have a whole lot of effect on the world. This thing takes on a life. It begins to breathe, and it's active, and it is powerful when we join up with other believers who are also worshiping God, who are also having a personal relationship with him. And when we all kind of lock arms together and we join the revolution together and we begin to do this thing together, then we begin to see this world changed in the name of Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful thing that takes place, but it cannot happen solo. If you've convinced yourself that, you know, I I like showing up on Easter because they always bring out the good donuts and the kids get the candy and, you know, that sort of thing. But I don't need church the rest of the year. I'm telling you that the faith that you have embraced is one that you have made up because it's not the one found in the Bible. And on top of that, it's a very weak, very anemic faith. Like, like when I became a Christian, one of the things that I wanted to see was the power of God in my life and in our lives that I hear and I read about in the scripture. Like, don't you want to experience that kind of power? Don't you get a little bit jealous when you see other uh, people, you know, that are Christians or other churches and places that just seems like there's a, there's a, there's something there. There's a power. There's God's moving in that. And, and, And when you're on the outside, looking at that from a distance, like I get jealous of that, like not in a, not in a uh, ugly way, but like, I want to, I want to feel that power. I want to experience that power. And thank God we have such a, a great, loving, active church and it's a great place to worship. And we do get to experience that power, but I'm telling you, it happens in the context of together. It happens in the context of relationship. Stop trying to do this all by yourself. Now, this revolution that Jesus started 
Nobody did a better job of actually kind of tangibly describing what that revolution looked like than did uh, the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul, he gives us some words that kind of put some arms and legs and feet on, on the revolution and helps us understand it a little bit better. And we're going to look at that this morning in 1 Corinthians, a little book, a little letter that he wrote called 1 Corinthians. And it's not, now normally on Easter people read 1 Corinthians 15 because it's the, it's the whole resurrection, you know, raising from the dead chapter. But we're going to back up a couple chapters and go to chapter 13. Now, if 1 Corinthians 13 sounds a little familiar to you, it's because it's the one you've heard read at every single wedding you've ever been to in your life. And, and so now this is what I want to challenge you to do. Like, um, for all of you that are thinking about getting married someday, um, maybe don't read first Corinthians 13 at your wedding. It's okay. I mean, it's about love and, and it's all nice, but it's, Paul didn't really mean it for your wedding. What he meant it for was us, the church. This is a description. Like Jesus said this one, one time, he said that they're going to know that you guys are my followers by the love that you have for each other. If they can look at you and see, oh my gosh, these people are crazy about each other. Like every time they see each other, they're hugging each other's necks. In fact, did you know that the early church, like the first, second century church, they had a, a, a reputation of being actually a gathering, a gathering of homosexuals because they were constantly kissing each other and hugging each other. And that was the reputation that they got in that early days. Like, like we're, we're so like, no, 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 handshake, side hug, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah, like, like we're not nearly that affectionate. But, we, but we're called to this kind of beautiful, loving relationship that the world can look at and go, that, that, what's going on there? What's going on? Like these guys really care about each other. What's going on there? And so that's the kind of thing that we're called. And Jesus says, when the world sees that in you, they'll know you're mine. They'll know you're mine. And so Paul takes up that charge, and he gives us a description of the kind of love that Jesus is talking about in this, in this chapter that we call the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. Not about your wedding, not about your honeymoon, just about us as a church. Keep it clean. All right, here we go. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We're going to start with verse 1. This is what Paul says. He says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, <clears throat> but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge. And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So what's Paul describing here before we go any further? Paul's basically describing what we would think of as kind of super Christians, like these are people that they have incredible spiritual gifts. Their faith is like maxed out strong. They're just great people of faith. They, they're people that would give their lives for the cause of Christ, let themselves be burned, you know, sacrifice themselves for the cause of Christ. I mean, these are like, like rock star, superstar Christians. And we would look at that description and go, that sounds really good. And it does sound really good. It's, I think some of those qualities are something, some things that all of us should aspire to. But Paul's message is this, like, it doesn't matter how rock star your faith is. It doesn't matter how strong, how much Bible you read. It doesn't matter how perfect your church attendance is, how much money you put in the plate, how many, you know, people you lead to Christ. It doesn't matter how many homeless people that you serve and, and, uh, and feed. It doesn't, none of the, he says, none of that matters. It doesn't matter how strong, you know, your spiritual gift set is. If you've got every spiritual gift, you're 10 on all of them. He's like, none of that matters because if you can't simply love each other, what a waste. What an absolute waste of time because this revolution is all about love. And you're missing the point. 
If you're like superstar, rock star, faith guy, but you're a jerk to everybody around you, does it really matter? No, it doesn't, because all people can see is, man, you're a jerk. You're a jerk. So Paul teaches us what this kind of love, that this revolutionary love that we're called into as followers of Jesus Christ, he teaches us what it looks like. And this is what it looks like. Start with verse 4. He says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Now that's a, that's a beautiful, and there's a reason why we read that in, in weddings, because it's, it is a beautiful description of love. Beautiful description of love. In fact, when I was dating Jamie in college, I had a Bible that uh, right above 1 Corinthians 13, it was, I had written in there like advice for dating Jamie. And it was like, so in, and basically I just got in this habit of any time that things were rough between us and I thought she was wrong, I would go read this and just figure out, okay, what am I bringing to the table here and not doing? And, you know, maybe it's me that was wrong. And, and uh, anyway, so, so I, w- I would kind of do that. Like, it is good relationship advice in that sense, but it's also good relationship advice for all of us as a body of believers. What would it look like if we interacted with each other as brothers and sisters in Christ with that level of love? I love that last thing he says where he's like, love never ends. Love never ends. What if you took your commitment to, G- or commit- commitment to each other so seriously that if you even entertain the idea of breaking fellowship with another person in this church, it would feel like a divorce. It would, feel, it would, it would just be gut-wrenching. It would, just, it would feel like a divorce. Like that's the kind of commitment we're called to each other. And once we get good at doing that level of love and that level of loving relationship with each other, then it can't help but bleed out into the community around us, into the world around us. And that's when churches have the power to, to affect change in their communities and affect change across this planet. Everything, just I mean, there's, there's almost nothing in all of humanity that you can't tie back to the resurrection and the love revolution that started with this revolution. Everything, everything. I mean, I mean, that the resurrection is such a significant event in our lives that a bunch of guys got together a long time ago. It's like, Hey, let's just do this. Like, you know, that year that Jesus was born, let's just call that one, one. That's it. What year, what year was Jesus born? One, right? (laughs) Everything changes. You're just, you're just like all of our birthdays are just you know, I'm 1,972 years after Jesus, right? That's it. It's just, it's, just, it's that's it. It changed all of, it changed the way we, we track time. It changed everything. Every good thing that's ever happened on this planet, you can pretty much track back to uh, the resurrection. So it's like six degrees of Kevin Bacon, but six degrees of Jesus, right? It's just, you can track it all back there. It's, it's an amazing, like life-changing, history-altering event. And it's all about the way that Jesus taught us to love. And this is where so many churches nowadays are failing in their mission so miserably is because they've lost what John said in the book of Revelation is we've lost our first love. We've lost what we, we you know, that what our mission really is to really love each other and love the world around us and point them to Jesus Christ, to glorify God in everything that we do. 
This is a beautiful, beautiful kind of love that we're called to. You know what I love about Paul's description of this love here? He doesn't describe it as a feeling. Because it's not a feeling. This is where we, we get love wrong in our society. Love is not about a feeling. If love was a feeling, it would be the weakest of all human emotions. If love was just a feeling, it would be the weakest of all human emotions because feelings change. Like, who here that is married can raise your hand and testify to the fact that feelings change? Yeah, yeah. We got like 12 honest people, right? And the rest of you are just scared for your life right now, right? Right? Yeah, yeah. Feelings change. Like, like when it comes to my relationship with my wife, there are times I am like passionately in love with her. I can't get enough of her. It's like, she's like, leave me alone, leave me alone, leave me alone, whatever. And I'm like, ah, I just, you know, I just so, so awesome. Right. And then there are times, if you're honest, what what you're you're thinking about your spouse, you're like, man, if I I have to look at your face right now, (laughs) right? Feelings change. If love was just a feeling, it would be the weakest of all human emotion. But Paul does not describe it as a feeling. In Paul's description of love, it is a choice. It is a verb. You have to make a choice to be patient. You have to make a choice to be kind, to not envy, to not be arrogant, to not insist on your own way. You have to choose that. You have to make a choice to say that with me, love's never going to end. Because there will be days you feel like ending it. And you make a choice to say, to look, to look at another brother or sister in Christ and look at them, and you may be like on a disagreement thing, you know, maybe there was some hurt feelings or something like that. That happens. It's human nature. It happens at work. Church is not any more evil than any other place. You know, a lot of people think that church is just full of hypocrites and awful people. The good news is, yeah, it is full of hypocrites. You're one of them. I'm one of them. We, we all, none, none of us can live perfectly, right? And we all try it, and none of us can do it. But if I can look across the table to you and go, you know what? I know things are a little weird right now. I ain't going anywhere, though. I'm not going anywhere. We're going to work this thing out. Because I care about you and I love you and we're going to get through this. This is nothing. This thing is nothing that we can't get through. Nothing. And that's the way this beautiful love begins to really take place. And when people see that, man, you, can, you couldn't beat them away. I mean, they, they're just going to come. They're just going to show up. Because they want to be around something like that. Paul then goes on to say this in verse 8. He says, as for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Now, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I grew up, and I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, But then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Some of you came to church this morning, and maybe you don't feel like you have ever been fully known before in your whole life. Like no one has ever really got you, understood you. Maybe you don't even know if you understand you. I want to introduce you this morning to a relationship with a God who is the only being in the whole universe who really gets and understands and knows you, knows you. And Paul gives us this coffee mug quote that is amazing. He says, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. 
The greatest of these is love. You're not called to just some sort of solo, one-on-one personal relationship with Jesus. You're called to join a revolution where we revolutionize everything we come in contact with, with the love of Jesus Christ. We teach this world what it looks like when Jesus moves into the neighborhood. We teach this world what it looks like to when a people band together and are motivated by love and instead of by power and politics and backstabbing and money and everything else. We turn this world upside down. The reason this faith has carried on for 2,000 years, like, like this is what you need to know. When Jesus came, came around, he, um, he got popular pretty quickly when he started his ministry. He had about a three-year period of ministry. And he got popular pretty quickly. And people were liking what he was saying. It was revolutionary. He was, it was, it was, they really enjoyed hearing what he was saying. And they began to ask, could this be the Messiah? Could this be this, the rescuer that God promised he would send for us? And thousands of people began to follow him, and they were seeing him do great and wonderful signs, and they were marveling at all his teachings and everything else. And they were, and even the religious leaders, even the power players of that day were beginning to look at Jesus going, maybe, maybe, maybe this is the Messiah. They welcomed him when he came into Jerusalem. They welcomed him as they would welcome in a king. They had bought on to the Messiah train. They were there. But then Jesus started to say some things that suggested that maybe he was more than just a revolutionary. Maybe, maybe he was God. He'd say things like, me and the Father are one. If you've, if you've seen me, you've seen God. And everybody backed up and they were like, oh, I can buy into Messiah. But God, who do you think you are? And this is where everything kind of went south. Now, now, before you beat up on them too quickly, put yourself in their shoes. Like, if I stood before you this morning and was like, guess what, guys? I know you think I'm pastor. I'm God, too. Right? I'm sorry Jesus didn't do it with that kind of swagger, I'm sure. But, but right? <laughs> but... But you would look at me like you are crazy and you would ride me out of town, right? You'd be calling the authorities, get this guy out of here. Now, some of you that maybe love me and care about me a little bit more than others, you might, you might give me maybe, probably not, but maybe just the benefit of a doubt is like, okay, I will entertain briefly the idea that you might be God in the flesh, but I'm going to have to see some proof. <laughs> like, I need you to do something. I need you to go water skiing without skis. I need you to do something to show me that, you know, there's something to this. The reason our faith has lasted 2,000 years because Jesus put his money where his mouth was. The reason our faith has lasted 2,000 years and nothing's been able to squash it is because on Good Friday, he proved to us that he was love. And on Easter Sunday, he proved to us that he was God. He proved to us that he was God. And he invites us into that revolution. And he says, he doesn't just say, hey, I know, you, I know you've done some bad things. And come, come hang out with me. I'm going to make you less bad. Like, I know, like, I'm going to help you not cuss anymore. Really? Is that the gospel we're inviting people to? Like, I, I can't wait till I don't cuss anymore, Jesus. That's not, that's not what we're inviting people to, right? What he invites you to, he's like, join me in this revolution. We're getting ready to flip this world on its head. 
We're getting ready to turn this place upside down. They think they know how humanity advances. They think they know how to get ahead. They think they know what power looks like. We're going to show them that in this kingdom, the least is the greatest. We're going to show them that in this kingdom, if you humble yourself, I will lift you up. We're going to show you that in this kingdom, love wins the day. That's what we're invited to. That's why we do, people ask, why in the world do you do an Easter egg hunt? Easter's not about a bunny. We do an Easter egg hunt because we love people, you big jerk. (laughs) We do an Easter egg hunt because we like to see kids smile because maybe they hadn't smiled all week long. We do an Easter egg hunt because parents need a break and we like to have them, invite them here to have a good time on our dime. We do that because we love this town. And we will make ourselves look silly and put on stupid Easter bunny outfits and get dunked and do everything. Get up early on a Saturday morning to make it all happen because this is about sharing the love of Jesus with everybody we can come in contact with. And if a dumb plastic egg gets them here, then give me 10,000 of them and I'll lay them out. Because it's not about you and your haughty toddy religion. Leave it at home. We're not impressed. We're about love. It's a revolution. Get on board with this revolution. Get on board with this revolution. Amen? Amen. So this is the, this is the last thing. The gospel is that God sent Jesus to save this world by making all things new. And he's doing that in all of our lives. He's making us new again. And he's making all creation new. But we live out that gospel in loving relationships with each other. You can't do this alone. It doesn't work. That's your own made-up religion. It just won't work. So let's join together. Join with us over the next few weeks and find out what it looks like when we really band together and do this thing the way Jesus set it up to be done. Amen? Pray this prayer with me that Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Father, you're so good. And we thank you that you don't just invite us into some mamby-pamby, weak religion, but you invite us into an active relationship with you and with each other where we can revolutionize this world and transform it into your kingdom. And so God, we embrace that call and we ask that you would just lead us in that call. Help us to do the hard work that needs to be done to to see this kingdom transformation. Help us to know when to get out of the way and let you do your thing. We just love you. We love you so much. If you're here today, maybe for uh, the first time, or maybe you've been coming for a while and you're just not sure about becoming a person of faith, I want to tell you, this is not what you think it is. I want to invite you into a surprising relationship with Jesus Christ, a surprising relationship with a church that loves him. I want to invite you into that. And if you decided, you know what, I think I want to do this. I think I do want to become a person of faith. Your first step in doing that is to be baptized. That's what Jesus says. He says, go out and make disciples and baptize them. And that's what for 2,000 years people have been getting baptized. And today is Baptism Sunday. And we're excited about that. Now, before we do that, before we do that real fast, I, I want to mention this. I want to invite you back next week because what's going to happen next week as we carry on this series Uh, Next week, we're calling it Question Together. 
And a lot of people think that, you know, like, like I'm skeptic. I'm not sure about this faith thing. And, and you know, like I got some questions. I got some doubts. And we believe here that doubt is actually part of the faith process. And we embrace doubt and we embrace questions because we believe God's word has the answers that we're looking for. So come back next week. I'm not even preparing a message. I'm just going to be up here with another couple people. And we're going to take your questions. You can write them on a piece of paper or whatever. We're going to take your questions. Nothing's off the table. Nothing's off the table. We'll answer on the spot, unprepared, whatever questions that you have, because we believe this is the way, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And so we will embrace that doubt. We'll question together. We'll doubt together, and we'll work it out. But be here next week. It's going to be a lot of fun, all right?